The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Uh, we can do things a little different tonight. I, I did this last or two years ago with the, with the Trinity Group, and I'm a preacher, but I'm also a teacher. And so tonight I want to I just talk about like where y'all are in life. You can turn to 1 Samuel 16. There's something there we're going to look at. My name's Brody, and uh, it's nice to meet y'all and have you here. My wife was the girl playing drums. We've been together 25 years. We've got five kids. We started this camp in 97, and uh, God's been good to us. And uh, one of the things that we love doing is equipping young people, like equipping, you know what I'm saying? Not just, we don't just do evangelistic work, but we want, we want to disciple and, and equip. And I know most of you are believers, and so I want to talk there's, there's a lot of talk around your generation, and, 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 uh, and a lot of it is, is fairly uh, disrespectful from the older generation, like, you know, making jokes about your generation. And I, and I feel like, y'all, y'all remember the story in the Bible about Gideon's 300 men? Y'all remember that story? So if, if you study combat in that era, and get comfortable, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a lot, okay? And, so, and I'm going to talk fast, and I'm trying not to have a thick accent. Where you can understand me, okay? Uh, but that story is really cool because if you study ancient combat, they wanted to, about a three to one ratio is what you wanted going into combat. Well, when they start, and if you don't know that story, you can go look it up. It's in, it's in the book of Judges. I don't know what chapter. But when they started, the Israelites were at like a four to one deficit. And God was calling them to attack their enemies. So they're working from a deficit. Because typically that's what God calls Christians to do, to work from a physical or human deficit. Because why? Because then he, he gets the glory, right? And so they're like at a one to four ratio. Then he has them start eliminating people. And by the time they attack, there's like 300 of them. And if you do the math, it's like a 750 to one ratio. And I feel like here's what happened when I was growing up. I'm in, I'm in my mid forties. And when I was growing up, um, there was a lot of social or cultural Christianity. So a lot of people would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But, but it was kind of like you just said that, especially if you lived in the Southeast, anywhere in the Southeast. So, yeah, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? Ah, I got saved. People would say that a lot. I got saved or I was born again or whatever. And so you had a lot of social Christianity, but a lot of times that didn't line up with what Jesus teaches Christianity is in the four Gospels. And what's happened in your generation is people are not... People are totally cool saying, I'm not a Christian. I mean, I don't know what I believe, but I'm not a Christian. People, people are, are less likely to bluff their way through. Would you agree? You know what I'm saying? Like your generation is like, no, nah, that's not for me. That's not, I don't know what I believe, but that, it's not that. Or maybe I'm giving that a shot, but I'm not sure that I'm going to believe that. And so what's going to happen is you've got this, ma- like in my generation, we had this massive group of cultural, moralistic kind of Christian, if I could use that loosely, now it's narrowed down, and what's going to happen in the next 50 years, I, I'm, just, I'm not trying to be prophetic, but I believe in the next 50 years, this small, narrow-numbered generation of believers are going to do devastating work against the enemy. And so and what that's going to take is people like y'all saying, no, well, we're not going to fit into a cultural mold or standard. We're not going to fit into, you, you can call us millennials or generation, whatever the next one's going to be. Um, y'all kind of right on the, on the bubble there. Uh, what is it? What's it called? Okay. So, uh, yeah, cause I've heard, I've heard that that, that like there's been a change now. 
and so, but, but at any rate, your generation has this potential to do more for the gospel with the gospel, I think, because you're going to have people that are serious about their faith. So I want to talk to you about some things that the, the folks from Snowbird that are working with you while you're here, they are part of our leadership institute. And I want to go through some of the, just the training principles that we've worked through with them. Did this a couple years ago for the last couple of years with Trinity students. And, uh, and man, it's been really well received. So, uh, but what I wanted to read from first Samuel 16, before we get into these, these, uh, principles and talking points, um, I want to, I want to throw some ideas at you about David. I grew up being taught that Dave, the story of David that you're introduced with typically is David and Goliath. And his picture is painted that he's a really small young guy that maybe he's even as young as like 12 or 13. Uh, the story of, um, Samuel coming out in first, uh, Samuel 16, where Samuel comes out and anoints David to be the next King. Do y'all remember that story? You familiar with that story? David's the youngest of all these brothers. The, the, the prophet comes out, he looks through all the brothers and he says, Nope, it's none of them. Big, strong guys, dudes going in the army, war fighters. Nope, none of them. And then they bring this little kid in from the field and, uh, and he anoints him. And it says in first Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed on him from that day forward. Well, if you, if you then jump a chapter later to the story of David and Goliath, we've been taught that David was sort of this, this small kid that kind of had this, did y'all, did y'all grow up on veggie tales? There was a veggie tale portrayal of this where David was like this little vegetable thing. And he fought this big vegetable thing, you know, and it was, and it was kind of this classic portrayal of David is this weak, physically weak little boy that had a big heart and a faith in God. So he goes out and, and he's able to deliver his people. But I want to take you to one point in the story where that, that will sort of shatter that idea of who David was. And the point is when David is talking with Saul. And Saul looks at David, I'll read it. It's in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. And David's saying, let me go out and kill this guy. That's basically, David says, I'm going to go kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to cut his head off. I'm going to bring it to you. Game over today. Like this stops today. David's talking like a big, like, like a, a man of faith and action. And so he goes in to meet with the king. And if you look at 1 Samuel 17, Verse, give me a second. 37. First Samuel 17, verse 37. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So David convinces Saul. Who's Saul? He's a king. What is at stake if David goes and loses? All of the Israelites, the king included, have to be slaves to the Philistines. Do you remember that part of the story? So if David goes out, so, I'll, so I'm thinking, all right, so if there's a war to be fought, there's a battle to be fought, and, and it's going to be settled one-on-one, man-to-man, I'm not going to look at an, an impotent 13 or 14 or 15-year-old kid and say, yeah, man, go fight him. You, you've convinced me you're the guy. See, Saul is convinced that the Spirit of the Lord is on David. And that David is capable. He's sending David out as their only hope. And what I, what, like, like what I want you to start to think about is the idea that maybe you are the hope for the world. 
But it's going to take you embracing that, getting serious about it. See what I'm saying? So, so David goes out. We know the story. David goes out and kills Goliath, cuts his head off, holds it up, you know, keeps it as a souvenir, best souvenir ever from any trip. Okay, so here's what I want to do. Go back now into, into 1 Samuel 16. And this is before David meets Saul. So this is between David, the youngest son, being anointed and David going into Saul's service as a musician. Listen to how he's described for Samuel 16, 18. So let's say David's between 15 and 18, probably right here. He's in y'all's age bracket. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Let's take those five things and say, okay, what if a, a 17, 18, 19-year-old young man or young woman could possess these types of qualities and characteristics? What could you do in the business world? What could you do, what could you do in the world of education? What could you do in ministry? What could you do if you go to the mission field or you go work for a Fortune 500 company? What, what kind of impact could, could you make? Here's the five things he uses to describe David at this point in his life. He says he's skillful in playing. So he is skillful. So he's gifted, but he's also artistic. Now, he's, he's a man of the arts. And it's not just that he's a man of the arts, but he's a man who has used his talent at age 15, 16, 17 to honor the Lord. So he's taking what God's blessed him with, and he's using that to honor the Lord because he's writing all these psalms, which are just praise and worship songs and hymns in that day. All right. Next, it says he's a man of valor. Okay. He uses the word man. There's a lot of dudes in our society that are 22, 23, 24 that I would not use the word man to describe. Just, just like, I'm not, and I'm not saying that any of you, you men fall into that category. I'm saying as a generation societally, we got a deficit, man. Like we got a major deficit and a society and a culture that has weak men or men that don't embrace the responsibility God's called them to is a society that's in a deficit, digging a deeper hole that they may, there's a point where it's irreversible. And my generation really dropped the ball here. So David at age teenager is described as a man of valor. It's a description we would imagine being saved for a great leader and war fighter. He's young and inexperienced in the ways of the world. He's been taking care of the family farm. So here's my theory. Their farm is on border country. It's, it's like on the border. So it's, it's in borderlands. And to the south of them are Philistines, Amalekites, inv- Hittites, invading type uh, people, tribesmen, tribes people. That the way, I, listen, I've lived in Africa in an area in South Sudan and Northern Uganda where predominantly what happens between people groups is that they raid and take one another's livestock. That's how they war. And they've been killing each other for 3000 years over cows. So this is like a, this is the type of culture David's living in. So at 18 now I've at a church planners meeting in Northern Uganda, two young men come in. We invite these two young guys. They walk up. They're about 15 years old. They've got AK-47 slung across their, their shoulders. They've got a bandolier of, of, of magazines, not the reading kind. These would be ammunition holders that go into the weapon. Okay. They're wearing flip-flops, gym shorts, and they come walking and shepherd staffs. And they come walking up. What are they doing? They're shepherds. They're shepherds. Now, I want you to think in your mind, the concept we have of shepherd is the dude on the harp 
sort of lounging around with straw in his mouth, watching the sheep. You know what I'm saying? Like culturally, maybe that's not your view, but that's what you've seen in pictures and paintings. And that's kind of culturally how we see it. Shepherds in these types of cultures are war fighters at a very young age. And, and the Dinka and the New Air people groups in South Sudan, they're trained to, to be gunfighters and to protect cows at about age 13. At about age 13. So David is being described as a man of valor, which means in combat, he has proven himself. He's proven himself. It says he's prudent in speech, so he's articulate. A lot of times when talking with a young person, um, a young person who's able to articulate themselves, if, if, a, if a young man can, can, can look like, okay, I'll give you an example. Like right now, be comfortable, slouch, chill, whatever. But if you're in a con, like a conversation with a grown man, square your shoulders up, fellas. Look him in the eyes and use full sentences with, with words that are more than a syllable. Learn how to talk like somebody. Make sense? Because what happens is your generation is kind of known for this whatever kind of attitude. Again, I'm not saying y'all are this. I want to help you for because y'all what? Two months from graduation, and the world's going to throat punch you. <laughs> Some of you are going to be like, what in the world? Okay, so, so learning how to communicate, not using words like, like, every third word in a sentence. You know what I'm saying? Like, learn this. Learn how to communicate and articulate yourself. Because what I'm telling you is, David's being described as a man of, like, who's prudent in speech. So here's a, here's a 16-year-old dude-ish who is described as a man of valor in combat and someone who you can, you can have a conversation with him. He's going to look you in the eyes. He's going to shake your hand like a dude. He's going to communicate clearly, articulate words, use concepts, thoughts, ideas that convey something with meaning. Learn how to do that. Okay. Next. And that'll, that'll mean a lot for you in the classroom and in the workplace over the next five years. That will, that's where, like right now, you're like, like if you imagine all of the 18 year olds in America are kind of like right here, that's, what's going to put you right here. You're just going to explode. You're going to, it's going to launch you into your twenties. If you can articulate and, 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 uh, and speak with, with clear and prudent speech. Um, next he says, he's a man of good presence. This is the idea that people like having David around. Like he, he brought something to like, like to the, the atmosphere of the room, the conversation or whatever. Like it was good to have him around. He wasn't overbearing. He wasn't annoying. He understood when to, when to use humor and when not to, you know, like he, he knew we can have fun. We have a good time. We, we, there's times we need to be serious. That's something that's really important. Um, it might even be said that he enriches the experience that others are having simply by him being there. And the last thing, which is the one that holds all of these up. Okay, watch this. The last thing it says is holding these other four things up. And it says, the Lord is with him. So go back to verse 13. So it says, it says right there that the Lord is with him in verse 18. But if you go back, I don't know, a few months, a couple years, to verse 13, it says, the spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. That's the day that Samuel anointed him. So with the anointing of the Lord on his life, God's sort of doing this work in him and through him. So what David's doing is surrendering his life to the Lord each day. And then he's being used effectively, not just for ministry, but in the, we need, we need godly business men and women. We need godly medical professionals. We need godly people in the military. We need godly people coaching the next generation of students, teaching the next generation of students. We need godly farmers and welders and mechanics and nurses. We need people that go into every domain of society, 
not as a mission field, but for what it is. It's a domain or an arena, and we're going to take light into that dark place. In order to do that, we need to be viable. In other words, people need to take you serious. You need to be able to articulate. You need to have a strong presence. You need to know how to dress and present yourself and do these things when you get there. So, so I want to help you. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, this, this is a series that I wrote a while ago that we're going to eventually turn into a book, but I'm just going to give you bullet points. that will be chapter titles. This is called Becoming an Asset, Not a Liability. Becoming an Asset, Not a Liability. So I'm going to buzz through these super fast. All right. Y'all with me? Good. Y'all hanging? Okay. I'm not preaching tonight. Wednesday night, I'm going to throw down both barrels. Okay. So tonight, this is just instructional and it is free of charge. You did not even have to pay admission to come in here. You're going to pay a lot of money when you get to college, unless you're on whatever the, what is the scholarship that you get in Florida if you're really smart. If you're on that, maybe you want to pay a lot of money. But anyway, at any rate, tonight, I hope this helps you. All right. Becoming an asset, not a liability. First, learn to be professional. Like right now. Not, I took a 400-level business class and they taught me how to be professional. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about Pay attention to how leaders and corporations and ministries and things like that, how they carry themselves. Watch men and women who are at, who are at like higher level leadership positions. Watch how they dictate, like, like how, watch how they conduct their lives on a daily basis. Learn to be professional. Learn to be professional. Learn how to dress. Learn how to communicate. Learn how to interact. Look, watch this. Learn how to make eye contact. And use real words that have appropriate meanings. To put it in the words of one dude one time that was here, he said, he said, young people would do well to learn how to say less, better. So using the least amount of words or the fewest words, but, but conveying the clearest thought. Make sense? Make sense? Good. That's good advice. Um, next, so we're going to be professional. We're going to be proficient. Learn to be proficient. Learn the necessary skills to not only get the job done, but to get the job done well. If you're working at a fast food joint, you're working at a coffee shop, you're working wherever you land a job, don't just do enough to get by to like collect your paycheck at the end of the week. Learn proficiency so that whoever's in charge around there starts to look at you as a go-to man or woman. Like I need her, like when they're making the schedule and they're like, okay, it's Christmas season, uh, the oh, black Friday. I want her here because I know what kind of work she's going to do in that situation. And if I can convince her to pull a double, I'm going to get her to do it. Like you want to, you want to win people over that way because of your proficiency. That's going to come by you learning the necessary skills. Next be proactive. This one's huge, man. This one's so big. This, uh, so an example, of this would be, don't wait to be told what to do. When you finish a task that has been assigned to you, here's what the average American will do. I know you're not all Americans. I think we've probably got some exchange students. Any exchange students? Where are you from? Oh, I got a friend that's over there right now running like a community, uh, like a community. He's uh, like helping people with water and stuff. Pretty cool. In the mountains, somewhere in the mountains. On a, in a, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like a geologist and, and they're on, he's on a border. Does it, what, what countries is it border? Okay, that's where he's at. That's cool. He just, he's got a, just got a newborn baby. Pretty cool. Um, welcome to the mountains of North Carolina. What's your name? Sultan. That's like giant or king or boss. That's a good name. That's a good name. All right. Welcome. Good to have you. Um, 
Okay, so what was I, what was I going to say? Oh, in America, here's what people tend to do. Uh, someone assigns to, again, I hope you hear when I'm saying all these things, I'm not accusing any of y'all of any of these things because I don't know y'all. All right. But here's what, by observing your generation and the previous two or three generations, by doing what I do for the last two decades, here's what I observe, not just in your generation, but with 30, 40, 50 and 60 year olds, here's what people will do. The task they've been assigned and then they'll go over and sit down get their phone out and start like farting around on their phone, playing around. Be proactive. When you finish a task there, I guarantee you there's something else that needs to be done. Guaranteed. And, and if you'll learn to do that, don't wait till something like, like till something's assigned to you. When you finish a task, find the next one to do next, uh, strive for mastery, strive for mastery. Don't just settle for getting by. This kind of goes back into being proficient. It takes it to the next level. Strive for mastery. Too, too many people are content to do the minimum. Listen, good enough, in quotes right here, good enough should never be good enough for you. Should not. Next, I think we're on number five. Don't blow off mistakes. Don't blow off mistakes. You screw up, own it, learn from it, embrace the consequences from it. You mess up, take it serious and set out to correct what you broke. Don't his fault, her fault. This to go like, this is rooted in the first human behavior problems. When God shows up in the garden of Eden, cause Adam and Eve have got this issue where they sinned against God. And what do they do? She, you know, he blames her, then blames God. And she blames the, you know, everybody's like, ah. if somebody would have just said my bad, man, I like, I totally screwed that up. I'm, that's, that's on me. Like when you do that, things move forward. When you don't do that, things move backward. So don't blow off mistakes. Take them serious. Learn from them. It's not the end of the world. Next, finish what you start. Finish what you start. Fulfill your commitments. No, <laughs> let, me, let me help you know how to do this. Know the difference between an excuse and a reason. Because people will say, I got a reason for why I can't do X, Y, or Z. And what it really is, is an excuse, which is a cop out. So know the difference between an excuse and a reason. Because you, you can talk yourself into breaking a commitment. You can do this. You can justify it in your own mind and convince yourself that it's okay. So finish what you start. Fulfill your commitments. Don't make excuses. Next, expand your vocabulary, both professionally and in life in general. Expand your vocabulary. It just means when high school stops, you don't stop learning. When college stops, you don't stop learning. If you go to graduate school, when that stops, you don't stop learning. Be a lifelong student of everything. Of everything. Because we'll study what we like. Now, me and Timothy were shooting today. I'm a gun dude, man. I'll st- I'm a geek. Like, I'm a not a geek about anything. Like, I was bad in school. I'm, I, do, I, was a, I was like... I don't know a lot about, but I'm like a geek when it comes to ballistics and firearms. It's like, why? Because I like it. I really enjoy that. So I study it. We tend to enjoy some, we tend to study something or pay attention to something we enjoy. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's your favorite artist. Maybe it's your favorite TV show. But be, be a, like a student of everything. Einstein said this, I'm not that smart. I'm just passionately curious. Here's what he's saying. Uh, what I do is I ask a lot of questions about a lot of different things and I try to learn and remember. 
Next, aim for success and refuse to settle for failure. We have raised a couple generations now of people on the mindset. It's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. Don't be apologetic over wanting to win. In life, in business, in sports, like you should strive to be the best at something. And you should, like you should not be okay with losing initially. You should, if you lose at anything, you should have to go, and coach will amen me. Like if you lose at something, you should have to go as a Christian. Okay. And like take that to Jesus, sort it out and get back in like, you know, in the swing of life. Like it should, it should rattle you. You should not be okay with losing. Because the scripture even describes us using words like conquerors, victorious, like that's, that's the way we're hardwired. And so we should not be okay with, with like, don't settle for failure, but when, but when you do fail, cause it'll happen, won't it? Accept it, learn from it, correct it. And going into every endeavor, give a hundred percent. There's no such thing as 110%, by the way. I don't know if y'all were like, if you did math. Really well, but if you, if you, if you, if we're talking just pure percent, give a hundred percent and here's what happens. We're broken, fallen creatures. And so a hundred percent, nobody's going to hit that at anything ever. So you give a hundred percent as like effort that way. When you do make mistakes, you're going to be up there towards the top in terms of percentage. And so you're able to walk away and go, okay, I like, I failed at that. I lost at that, but I'm going to accept it. I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to correct it. I'm going to go learn from that. Y'all, I don't, I don't know if you're sports fans, but the national championship in football this year was Clemson and Alabama. I don't know when the last time this happened, but, you know, Alabama beats Clemson last year. And I'm not going to get into, like, who's who and who's the best team, whatever. I mean, we know who the best team is right now, right? I mean, in theory. Clemson is a national champion. Last year, Alabama was. It was cool hearing the stories of guys saying, we lost we went back to the drawing board and we said, we'll do whatever it takes to get back and not lose the next time. It's that kind of mentality we're talking about. Next, remember who you ultimately work for. The Lord is being reflected in everything you do. Or if you're not a Christian, you're working for somebody. Like everybody, everybody's trying to impress somebody. Everybody's trying to get ahead. Everybody's, so remember who you ultimately work for because that's going to matter. Like, like if it's not Jesus, if it's just as a provider, I got a, I told you, I got a wife and five kids. If nothing else, I got to work for them. I got to put food on the table. I got to make sure that, I mean, it gets cold here in the wintertime. Like it's warm here right now. It gets cold in the wintertime. Make sure they're warm, you know? So remember who you ultimately work for. For me as a believer, that's, Jesus. Next, expand and grow always. Expand and grow always. Look for opportunities to expand your experience in life. This is like, this would be something like, uh, you know, if there's, let's say, let's say you're in your, you, you get into your degree program and there's an opportunity to go study abroad. And you're like, ah, you know, that's going to cost me an extra three or $4,000. I don't think it's wise. Find that line where it's like, okay, yeah, that's maybe that's economically not wise. Or maybe it's, eh, I don't really want to go overseas. That doesn't appeal to me. Okay, then you should probably go. And, ex- and like get uncomfortable. Expand your, like expand your opportunities in life and get uncomfortable. Again, as Christians, this is critical for how we advance the gospel because the gospel doesn't lead us on a comfortable, easy path. The best leaders first learn from following and from learning. Let me read that again. 
The best leaders first learn from and by following and from learning. In order to be a good leader or a team player, we must first learn to take orders, accept responsibility, embrace our failures, and get the job done. And in all of that, put the gun to the head of the attitude of entitlement and murder it every day. Like behead entitlement in your life every day. Do not wake up and think, I deserve this. This belongs to me. I should get X, Y, or Z. Do not have a sense of entitlement. Don't have it. Fight and work for everything you get. I'll tell you, with, I'll tell you this is what I've learned. People in, in other cultures, and Sultan probably, probably agree with this. People in other cultures that have less broad opportunity than what Americans have, they get this principle a little better. Like fight for everything you got, work for everything you got. We have we have created sort of this comfortable culture of what what do I get coming to me? You know, don't maintain that. Murder the sense of entitlement. The best leaders learn from following and taking orders and submitting to authority. Next, don't make excuses. Some of these kind of overlap and double up. Don't make excuses. Rather, accept responsibility for your actions. We talked about that one a little bit earlier. Next, don't leave any task unfinished. Don't leave any task unfinished. This may mean working late or arriving early. Don't be the kid that when you get your first real job, some of you already got that job, you show up three minutes late every day. It drives me, it really annoys me. When I start every morning, we have an eight o'clock meeting with all of our staff. And this is... Uh, first year interns to 15th year directors. And if I start that meeting eight o'clock and my, like my, what I, what we tell guys and gals is get there 10 minutes early. Don't get there 30 minutes early that you don't have to do that, but get there a few minutes early. It drives me crazy when I stand up here and start that meeting. And at eight Oh one or three, somebody comes staggering in with a cup of coffee. I want to say, just go wait outside. Because what you're saying is, I take this serious, but not be on time serious. Does that make sense? So that, like, so here's what we come to. Well, here's the conclusion we come to. Little things are big things. Two minutes late is a big thing. Ten minutes early, that's easy. Twelve minutes of your life, not a big deal. So little things are big things. Don't leave any task unfinished. This may mean working late or arriving early. If, if, it's, you know, if you're going to get paid till. 4.30, punch the clock or not. You know, at 4.30, you're off the clock. But the, the job takes you to 4.45, it will be okay. The character that you get, like the character that comes to you through that is worth more than the 15-minute salary or wage that you would have made. All right. So within that, get rid of the mindset of showing up at the last minute and leaving punctually. All right. We're almost, we're, we're, we're getting ready to land the plane. Y'all good? You with me? We've got a couple more. A couple means like six, okay? Or, I don't know, it looks like six. Okay, if you hit a wall and don't know what to do, find, this goes for anything in life, academics, work, relationship, like you name it. If you hit a wall and don't know what to do, find someone who can help you over the wall or help you tear the freaking wall down. 
Okay. If you hit a wall and it's like, I don't know what to do. Somebody has been there before somebody like, and so this goes into one of my leadership principles. That's a totally different talk, a totally different. I got a list of leadership principles that I've written for myself that I lead by. And one of them is surround yourself with gunslingers who get stuff done. Surround yourself with those kind of people. Like when you, so right, right now you're surrounded with the people you're surrounded with. You've got like this, this community of people, like this band of brothers and sisters, you're going to leave and you're going to get a fresh start. Surround yourself with gunslingers, not with sloths. Okay. So that when you hit a wall, you got people to turn to. And, and, and with that, always have somebody that's, even if they're not like a mentor to you, somebody you can emulate and watch how they navigate life. Next, do everything you can to make yourself indispensable. Do everything you can to make yourself indispensable. When you go to work for somebody, convince him that he cannot do without you. Convince her that she's got to have you with this company or this organization or on this team or else it's going to be bad for her. People will say, oh, nobody's indispensable. No, but make, make them feel like you are. Okay, this is a good one. Learn how to do the jobs of those people above you and around you. Learn how to do the jobs of the people above you and around you because something's going to happen and you, you're going you're gonna to be able to step in and, and not just selfishly to be able to show, look what I can do, but maybe help the team, help the company, the organization in a, in a, in a time of need. Go the extra mile. I'm not going to elaborate on that. Encourage teammates. Encourage, be an encourager, man. Encouragers are empowerers. Oh, that's a mouthful. If you encourage others, you're going to empower them. You want to be liked and enjoyed by more than just the boss. So like an encourager is not the person that just sucks up to the boss. An encourager is somebody, but, but, an encourage, but don't be overbearing. You know, we've all been around that guy who like encourages at the wrong time. Like you miss the game winning three-pointer and they tell you, don't worry. And then they tell you some T-ball story about how they struck out and they know how you feel. And you're like, dude, you don't know how I feel, man. I just missed a three-pointer that would have won the game in the state championship or whatever. You know, don't be the guy that tries to make people feel better by telling a lame story. I'm talking about encourage day to day, like be an encourager to other people. You know what I'm saying? And then ultimately know whose you are and you will know who you are. Ownership determines identity, value, and purpose. If you're not working for something bigger than yourself, you're going to hit a dead end real quick in life. Ownership determines identity, value, and purpose. I'll give you an example. I own something, my belt. My belt. Nobody would want my belt. My belt, I've had it for, I don't know, maybe five years. It's like a, it's bull hide. It's a double leather bull hide like triple stitched belt. I love it. It's so durable. It's so rugged and heavy, but like it's warped to my goofy, like, you know, shape. It's like, it's, it's, it's got like big where, where I've hooked it. It's got big knots in it. You know, where the, the buckle has gone. If I, well, that belt cost $80 to replace. So if I, if I'm without this belt, I got to go, guess what? I got to spend 80 bucks to get a new one. Plus the about four month break in period. This belt to me is worth $80. I guarantee you it is not worth $80 to any other human being alive. But you know what? If this belt had feelings, he'd be okay with that. Because the person that owns him holds value 
for him, assigns value to him. You see, the Bible says that, and, and Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. And so the value that you've been assigned is, is, is the value that Christ has assigned us, which is his death, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the gospel. And, and if you think, well, I'm not a Christian, so that doesn't apply to me. Let me tell you something. Every human being alive will look for value outside of themselves. And wherever you look for that, that's the person that, that has, has, has grasped ownership over you. Like that person, at least to some degree, controls a large part of your life. So ownership determines identity, value, and purpose. To so know whose you are, you'll know who you are. All right, cool. We straight? All this makes sense? All right. I'd love to keep going and talk about some of my leadership principles. We might do that later, but for now, I think that's good. Y'all any questions? Questions. I've been doing this a long time. With people like when the first the first seniors from Trinity came through here, y'all were not in pre-K yet. Is that crazy? That's pretty wild. Pretty wild. Yes, sir. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, have, like, how have I seen these in play in my life? Well, I'm, that's a good question. Really, they've been written over the course of those 20 years where a lot of it was like, like, uh, see, when we, when my wife and I came here to start this camp, there was nothing but a raw piece of land here. And we lived and, and we bought half of the family land from the family. So it was her grandmother's land. Well, on the other half, there was this old cabin with no running water completely primitive. We lived in it for three years till she had our first child and it was really rough. And we were doing whatever it took just to get by and to get this thing going. Cause we believe God gave us this vision. When you, when you're, when you're working from a deficit, I think, uh, it, it you, it's going to force you to improvise and problem solve and troubleshoot. But we've created like what we've got is a society and a culture that says, Oh, don't work from a deficit. You can borrow against the deficit so that you can start kind of up here. So like we've made it too easy to get an easy start, but then that, that eventually comes back around and catches up with you. So if you got to work hard from the beginning and then what's going to happen, like with, for, to, to answer Timmy, Timothy's uh, question is like uh, these principles have come out in my life out, out of necessity and then observe some of them from necessity, some of them from observation. And every year I add to them. I, there, five years ago, I think I had five of these, six of these, and I just keep adding to them. And these aren't even those things I just shared. These aren't even my, like leadership principles. I've got like 20 leadership principles that I've written that those are more like I share those a lot with with people. But those are, are things that I live by. Like one of my favorite ones is be an upward pull, not a downward push. So you're the person that's, that's always making the machine move forward and you're not dead weight. Learn to shut up and listen. Set goals and move aggressively toward them. Know when to quit because there are times when you need to quit. It really is all about winning. You can be right and still be ineffective. Spend, spend more time learning and less time showing off what you think you already know. Never think that the delay of consequences is the same as the absence of consequences. Know what you don't know. Don't fall for your own publicity. Know the difference between a reason and excuse. We hit on that. Don't underestimate the competition ever. Embrace and maintain a constant attitude of service. Listen to weird ideas. 
Be passionately curious. That comes from the Einstein quote. Seek responsibility, but first prove that you are responsible. So it's like, those are leadership principles. That like, if you implement these things in your life, you know, they're going to, so y'all are like, y'all are going into this season of life where you really have an opportunity. Like, okay, take my grandparents' generation has been called the greatest generation. Have y'all ever heard of that? It's the World War II generation. So here's what happened. They're born into complete obscurity, all of them. Nobody knew anybody back then. It was not the information age. We were still kind of on the precipice of, like we were still recovering from the Civil War and then that, you know, that we never really got out of and as a nation. And then you had the, uh, like World War I had hit. And then we were in an economic decline when, our, when my grandparents were born and were little kids. So like they, like when the Great Depression hit, my, my grandparents were all between ages of like eight and 10. And so, and my grandparents all lived till late in life to the, to 90. So I got to hear lots of stories and they're all mountain people with a lot of historical, just like a wealth of information. But what happens is they grow up with nothing. So they don't have a sense of entitlement. Then they go to war against this massive regime that wants to overthrow planet earth. And they go to fight because they have nothing to fight for except the free air they breathe. So they don't go to fight because they had land and houses and, you know, they go because all we got is freedom and honor. So they go fight because there was no sense of entitlement. And so that generation, there's a lot that you learn from that generation as far as like not having a sense of entitlement. And so then ever since then, my generation included, we, we tend to expect things without earning the right to expect those things, you know? But so if you can learn these principles, what happens is like with my grandparents' generation, like when my granddad came home from the war, you know, he, he goes to war when he's 18 and a half, um, gets married and gets my grandmother pregnant, like within the first month. I was like, I hear you brother. That's what I'm talking about. Like potent, you know? So anyway, so he goes off to war he comes home, his daughter's two and a half years old when he meets her. He's married for like two months, goes off to war. Um, comes home and gets a job in a factory. Well, guess what? There were about a quarter of a million vets getting jobs in those factories. So it was literally like, I got I to get food. There were no government plans or programs. Credit cards didn't exist like they do today. So it was like, I have to feed my wife and daughter. So it was like, fight to get ahead. And so there was like, this, I, there was this attitude of being able to improvise, being uh, like, like understanding ingenuity, being able to create and cultivate. God created us in the garden. And he says to Adam, work and keep the garden. What's that? He's a cultivator. He's a creator. He's an artist. He's a doer. And so when you put yourself in a situation where you're not doing and cultivating and creating and making like uh, experiences, like, like making things happen, you tend, we tend to stagnate. The human experience stagnates. So what happens is part of what God gave Adam to do and protect the garden, he didn't do because he was complacent and the serpent came in and that, that led to the fall. And so you've got this mentality that's natural when like as humans, as soon as we get comfortable, we go kind of into this cruise control and you forget what you came from. I'll, I'll tell you a crazy story. Uh, my two youngest kids are adopted and they're from East Africa. They're from the country of Uganda. And when we got them, we fought, man, it was crazy. The Lord led us to them. We fought to get them. Uh, we had to get into a Ugandan court. Uganda doesn't have a good system of, for like international adoption. Like now you can't even adopt from there. 
So I got it. I got a Ugandan attorney. We got, she got us an appointment with a, superior, a Supreme Court justice in Uganda. We got in front of this guy. We had to win, we had to win our case. Our kids were like, their mother had died from, they think she probably had AIDS. She had sickle cell anemia. She had several other STDs. She had been like trafficked. It was, it was a mess. And then, uh, so, so she dies. So they're basically like scrounging for themselves. Juju, my, my, at the time, four-year-old when we got her, She's almost eight now, but so she's caring for her six month old little brother and trying to find food, stealing, robbing, uh, like it was crazy. So the police pick him up, put him in an orphanage. We go to that orphanage. They've been in that orphanage for six months. It was a really, really bad place. Filthy, filthy. I've been in a lot of orphanages and a lot of places in the world. This is the worst one I've ever seen in the slums of Kampala, Uganda. Okay. I take them, we, we, we get them from like, like to court, win the court case, take them to our house where we lived there in Kampala. The first night we fed them, they ate like, like wild animals. The second night we put food out and Juju went, nah, I won't. And she like, she couldn't speak English. So she's like pointing at something. Somebody had some candy, like a, some cakes. She's like, I want that for supper. I thought that's. Like that's a perfect example of how quickly the human nature can feel entitled. You go from starving to eating food to now I'm going to make demands. And, and which, and that's part of that's just, well, she's a little kid. That's parenting. Like you got to do that with any kid, you know, as a parent, that's a big part of the job of parenting. But I thought that's a really raw picture of the human nature. We want what we want and we want it right now. It doesn't matter what we've had or haven't had. And so by what a lot of these principles will do is they'll put you in a deficit where you're constantly having to work. You're constantly having to fight to survive and get ahead. And, and I'm telling you, man, it works. These things work. This is not like a internet, you know, uh, buy the DVD series and you'll make a bunch of money. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about building character and integrity so that you may never make money. You may, God may call you to work in a third world mission field where you ain't going to make much money at all, that these principles will absolutely be valuable for you because they're gospel principles. I call them leadership principles of the gospel man. So, make sense? Y'all going crazy? Y'all, are y'all like, Look, get, get out of here, man. Let's go. Let's go ride the swing. Huh? Sweet mullet, dude. I had that hair. I had that same haircut like 30 years ago. I'm... I appreciate, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. I can't have it now. If I could, I would. Do what? I, got, I don't have any hair. It's bad. I, um, I started shaving. I played college basketball and I started shaving my head in my freshman year. I played for Liberty University. But I started shaving my head and uh, and I was like, I was like, Thick hair and man, if I could go back now, I wouldn't shave my head till I needed to, you know? Y'all got any questions? Yeah. What's the hardest thing for me to like implement in all of these? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm not naturally a professional person. I'm not na- like, I'm naturally a hillbilly from blue collar people. 
the easiest thing for me to do would be to get a, a, a construction job. But God pushed me and called me to something besides that. Not better or greater, but just living outside of what would be comfortable. I think that's probably for most people. Like getting up early, going to bed late, working hard. That stuff, that, that, like that's kind of the culture I come from. But yeah, being stepping outside of what's comfortable for me. I think that's probably true for most people. All right. Okay, I'll turn you on loose. I know you'd like to get out of here. Let me, let me, can I pray for us? I think that'd be cool. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.